On this episode of AvTalk, the densest version of the 737 MAX is certified, dubious distinctions are earned, and we talk with Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren about an important but underreported portion of Boeing's history. Hello and welcome to episode 109 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz and welcome to the 109th episode extravaganza. We're deep into baseball season episode numbers now, I feel like. So I went with the baseball announcer opening of the show. I hope I didn't put off any of it. Or maybe it was more like a Price is Right thing. I don't know. Come on down. Yeah, exactly. One dollar for this particular aircraft. How are you, sir? I am. I'm, I'm fine, I guess. You know, the, the usual answer these days. The usual. Haven't left my apartment. I went grocery shopping. That was the only human interaction I had, et cetera, et cetera. But you're well on your way to superpower status, and you've got some things in the works. I do. I do. So I am half- vaccinated at this point. I have my my appointment for my second shot in two days, and then I will wait two weeks for it to actually do its thing, plus one day. And then I am going to Chicago to visit you and eat a hot dog. Excellent. Yes. It's really to eat a hot dog, and I'm kind of incidental to the whole experience. But I- You have a car. <laughs> I am a conveyance. Exactly. And, and we'll talk a little later about some things that I put on hot dogs, but you're not supposed to in Chicago and how that ties into aviation. But I'm very excited to once There's again- always an aviation angle. Always an aviation angle, as John Ostrauer says. But I'm very excited to be booking flights no longer aspirationally, but realistically. And actually in just over two weeks and three days, actually getting on an airplane for the first time in 400 plus days. I'm- Starting to think about booking travel and things like that, it, it looks like my first flight will, at this point, possibly be in September out for Dorkfest and Spot LAX. And I'm just going, I'm thinking about how weird it's going to feel to not just get on the airplane, but just to go to the airport and do all of that stuff again. The whole thing. Yeah. So I, I now have to think again and remind myself, like, how is it that I used to get to LaGuardia? And how early do I have to leave? And what are the conditions these days? But of course, my reintroduction to the world of air transport will be more than likely departing out of LaGuardia's bad old terminal, which I can't think of a better way to regain my status as an airline passenger. I mean, it's it's fitting. It's it's very fitting. Yeah. It really gets you back into the, the feel of consistent disappointment. If the ceiling isn't dripping on your head, you're doing it wrong. Wait, there's a ceiling now? Parts of a ceiling. Okay. Last time I was there, the ceiling was comprised of some old ceiling tiles that weren't held up by much of anything and a tarp. I have a a 50-50 shot. So I'm booked on American out to O'Hare on a 738 and back on a 319. And American is split operations. So half their operations are in one of the newly opened in the middle of the pandemic, new terminal building, and the other half are in the very not new terminal. So it's roll of the dice. I don't know what I'll end up being in, but I'm actually kind of hoping for the old terminal, weirdly enough. I mean, you know, it's uh, 
familiar. Yeah, we'll we'll call it that. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward uh, to to your visit. I'm looking forward to to enjoying a hot dog and seeing some seeing some planes and all that good fun stuff. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that in the upcoming episode. Let's dive in to what has happened in the past couple of weeks. And then later in the show, we are going to talk with Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren, who we're going to surprise with a sandwich (laughs) on his punch card. But then we're going to meet a very, very special character. I cannot wait for you all, dear listeners, to hear about this. I, I think it's going to be thoroughly exciting and very frightening as well. But that is later in the show. First things first, the cockpit voice recorder memory module from the Sriwijaya Air Flight 182 crash has been found. They had been searching for it since the crash. They had, not long after the crash, found the beacon and housing for the CVR, but the actual memory module had separated from the housing. So that has been recovered. They recovered it in a few meters of mud. So this was not, it's not large. I mean, it's the size of a external hard drive and it was under a few meters of mud. So that's pretty awesome that they found it. Yeah. And the images that we got after the recovery, the, it looks like the piece of metal that connected the module itself to the rest of the unit were, were absolutely mangled, twisted piece of metal, but the mo- memory module itself looks like it held up like a champ, which is which is great. But again, it, it's disheartening and concerning that this piece completely separated from the rest of the unit, which has the locator panger so they could actually easily find it. But once again, they've, they've managed in Indonesia to find the dislocated memory module buried in mud. So hats off to them for being able to do that. Yeah. And so they'll they'll do the analysis. Hopefully, everything is as it should be and the readout is successful. And that'll be part of the final report that comes out in a few months' time. And so we'll wait on that front to learn more. Last week, the FAA certified the newest variant, sub-variant, I guess we could call it, of the 737 MAX, and that is the variously titled MAX 8200, MAX 8-200. It's the one where you smash all of the people in it, yes, and then it goes and flies for Ryanair. So it's a modified version of the MAX 8 that has an additional exit door aft of the wing so that they can seat up to 200 people. I think Ryanair will seat 197 people in their in their version. And so th- this basically was an aircraft designed with Ryanair in mind. Yeah, and Ryanair can actually be outdone. The Boeing says the 737-8200 can hold up to 210 passengers. So Fascinatingly enough, Ryanair actually isn't anywhere near the maximum limitation passenger-wise of this aircraft. Don't give them any ideas, Jason. Uh, They already have the idea, and somebody (laughs) will do this. There there will be an airline that seats 210 people on it. It may not be Ryanair, but somebody will pack 210 passengers inside a 737. 
Exactly. So the FAA said it's good to go last week. This week, yesterday, EASA said it's okay by us too. So FAA and EASA have both certified the MAX A200, clearing the way for Ryanair to take delivery whenever they would like to. They said they would like to have them soon, but we'll see when they actually take delivery. Because as we know, things that Ryanair says might not necessarily be things that Ryanair actually means. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes. But yeah, that'll be interesting to see Ryanair starting to put the the Max into service. They've got, you know, hundreds of, of these on order. So it's good that they're certified. Yeah, that's the, the biggest hurdle <laughs> to putting an aircraft in service, isn't it? I feel like we've gone very back to basics on this episode of the podcast. But yeah, I mean, nowadays, it's not a foregone conclusion. Like the aircraft is ready, it gets put up for certification. It's not a foregone conclusion that it will be certified. Yes, the uh, 777X has entered the chat. <laughs> oh, ouch. We'll get to the 777X in episode 209 in a few years. Ugh. Yeah, ouch. looking that way. In other Max news, Fly Dubai is restarting commercial service this week. They are putting their Max back into service from Dubai to uh, Silicon on the 8th of April, and then a few other routes to start out with. And Blue Air took delivery of their first Max. Then it's in the air right now, operating a flight from Dublin. And I can't remember if Lot returned theirs to service in between in between the last episode of the podcast, but they, they are back in service. So so slowly but surely things are loosening up. Getting there. I'm also seeing Aerolinius Argentinus operating a max now. I don't think I knew that they were operating once again, so that's new to me. Yes. And then I think North America remains unchanged since the last time we discussed things. So we'll uh, we'll keep an eye well, on- Who was left in North America to operate the Max? I think ever, anyone that had them pre-grounding is already operating them, no? That is true. Okay. So it cannot change. Well, I suppose it could change the other way, but- there are no more. There are no more animals no. left. To, I think WestJet is operating them again, once again, right? Here and there. Yeah, I don't see any in the air right now, but that doesn't mean they aren't at all. But yeah, American, United, Southwest, Copa, Aeromexico, Air Canada, WestJet, Goal, and Aerolineus Argentinus. I don't know of anyone left in the Americas as a whole that is not operating the Max, who has a Max to operate. Right. So let's see, you know, how, how things shake out. And, oh, and Alaska. Who's next? Ah yes, Alaska took theirs most recently. They are the they are the newest entrant. Also this week, as far as certifications and regulatory changes, this was an interesting one that it gets a bit technical. But I guess the long and the short of it is GPS wrong, landing bad. Ah, oh, not again. Uh, so, Jason, why don't you explain that in a little more detail? I'll give you a little more detail. But I remember, that. GPS has been a, a weirdly tricky thing with aviation in the in the last couple of years. Remember, we had. I guess it was in the beginning of the pandemic where there was a Rockwell Collins GPS receiver that just kind of stopped working. 
on a bunch of regional jets in the U.S. and, and grounded a chunk of the CRJ fleet. Well, now we have another Rockwell Collins GPS receiver that has a, a particularly odd bug where if it's within plus or minus 20 degrees of 180 west, I guess that's the latitude? Longitude. Longitude, thank you. It could have you bad positional data. And for whatever reason, this issue impacts 3,500 planes just in the U.S. registration. So that's a lot. And I'm getting this from Seth Miller at PaxX.Arrow. He highlighted this sentence. It says, uh, the software improperly applies the wide area augmentation system ionospheric delay corrections to the GPS signal from the satellites located across the 180th meridian. Due to this anomaly, the position accuracy may be diminished. FAA is issuing this airworthiness directive to prevent a misleading glide path on an effective LPV approach, resulting in CFIT, which stands for Controlled Flight into Terrain, which is never good. I guess the the long and the short of it is there could be an error in positioning and the plane could fly into the ground. Yes. So Uh, fix this so that doesn't happen. Yeah. And it's a, I mean, there isn't a ton of much within the the box that's plus minus from 180 west uh, except for some of the pacific islands and also new zealand Zealand. which which is problematic but yeah that that's not great it seems like the the issue is is not not fixing it because that seems relatively easy to do it just seems like it's going to cost quite a bit of money yeah, and time. It's a hardware swap, apparently, and that takes that requires grounding the aircraft, getting it to a maintenance facility, and physically swapping out hardware. I assume, at least that's what this says. I'm a little surprised they can't do it in software. Yeah, I do not know much about this particular piece of hardware and the associated software. So if anyone has some insight into why it's a hardware issue rather than a software issue. I mean, obviously, Jason's going to do some thorough in-depth research and, and get back to us. But if you want to help Jason with that research, you can email us at podcast at fr24.com. And Jason would be very grateful. Will send me over to New Zealand to test this personally. Y- yes, that is exactly what we will do. Airbus is changing the way that the rudder is operated on the A320 family. And this is something that Jason has been following extremely closely because as many of you know, Jason's preeminent focus as far as aviation is concerned is is the passenger experience, what's inside the aircraft and things like that. What many of you may not know is that Jason also has a deep fascination for rudder controls. Yes, that is definitely a completely true statement. All of that is true. And I just don't find it interesting that Airbus is is changing up an integral part of the flight systems on the A320 series between, I guess, iterations of it. So this isn't something that happened when they switched over from the A320CO series, the classic, over to the NEO. This is actually going to now be introduced in uh, early 2024 with the introduction of the A321XLR, and it's called E-Rudder. And I just found this particularly interesting because it's a further development of fly-by-wire for Airbus, which is, um, you know, Airbus has really been the the front runner when it comes to fly-by-wire when you compare it to the... uh, 
the 737, which is kind of, I guess there have been elements of fly-by-wire incorporated, but there are still a lot of mechanical linkages in that family of aircraft. But here on the NEO and actually in the XLR, they are removing a whole bunch of mechanical systems that control the rudder. So this article comes from Flight Global that summarizes it nicely. But under the current A320 and 320neo fly-by-wire architecture, seven computers comprising of two flight augmentation computers, two elevator aileron computers, and three spoiler elevator computers handle the flight control surfaces. So where the pilot's feet go when they, they move the, uh, the rudder pedals, that is actually a mechanical linkage to computers, which then actuates a thing with hydraulic actuators from what I understand. But by removing pretty much all of that mechanism and switching over to electrical interface with the e-rudder program, they'll save 40 kilograms in weight and enable the removal of several fixtures and three computer units. So I don't know. I just found it interesting that Airbus is going even further down the road of fly-by-wire, but not at a time where it's introducing a new aircraft or a new iteration of an aircraft. Well, I mean, it kind of is, though. I mean, the the 321LR is... The, the, for the XLR, sorry. Sure, it's an A321. Sure, it's an A321LR. But really, the XLR is is kind of a new plane. It is, but here's the kicker. This system was actually supposed to be introduced at the end of this year. So in the end of 2021, however, with I'm currently waving around, pointing at everything right now. Yes, yes. It has been delayed several years and will happen to coincide with the launch of the A321XLR. And to clarify, this will become standard on all if an A319neo is ever put into service with somebody. I'm sure it will be. (laughs) There are orders, uh, 320neo and 321neo, but it will not be retrofittable to already produced aircraft, including existing neo. So it just happens to be launching alongside the 321XLR, but it is not specific to that aircraft. Got it. Got it. The PW4000 series fallout continues apace. No surprise here, but Japan Airlines making it official. Their Pratt & Whitney 4000 series engined powered 777-200s will be retired. They are not going to fix them. They're not going to deal with the inspect. We're just, they're done with them. They're done. It's a bit of a coincidental case with with JAL here since they had actually already committed to retiring these uh, next year or or the following year. So these were already well on their way to the chopping block. So now that they are accelerating that retirement because it just makes sense to ditch these aircraft now. But not every airline is as fortunate with the timing as JAL since airlines like United is probably the worst case scenario with this now where it has dozens of these aircraft, I think, which were just very, very recently fully refurbished. Yeah. So I think they were supposed to be in the fleet till 2026 or 2027. So they really don't have a choice but to inspect and get these aircraft flying again. But yeah, JAL completely removing them from the fleet a year ahead of time, which all things considered right now is probably not as bad as it could be. Certainly not as bad as it could be. It'll be interesting to see what they do with the the 300s though, the oddball of the 777 family. The non-ER. Yeah, the non-ER, the the regular plain old 777 300s. I didn't see that as part of the announcement, though I can only assume if it wasn't part of the announcement, then they're keeping with their 
existing timeline? I, that was unclear to me. Yeah, I guess we'll, we'll wait and see. We'll have to send me out to Japan to, to you know find out. Well, if you if the flight you're on makes it to New Zealand, we can send you up from Japan. It's on the way. Okay. Prob- wait. Wait a minute. Yeah. So I guess <laughs> I, I don't. I, I was trying to find a transition there, but I don't have one. So I'm just going to move on. Here's the transition. Well, United is in dire need of, of extra wide bodies since a good chunk of its fleet is grounded due to the Pratt & Whitney 4000 issues. But lo and behold, Boeing comes in the clutch and has restarted 787 deliveries with United being the first to go. Well done, sir. I told you to put this topic right below Jaw, and now you, you know why. You did. Now I know why. Yes. So Boeing has restarted after five months. The last delivery prior to the end of March to United was October of 2020. In the interim, Boeing has dealt with, as we've discussed on a few previous episodes, myriad quality issues relating to the 787, including shimming and other manufacturing issues, trying to make sure that the aircraft is as promised and and structurally sound. They restarted deliveries with United taking the first one, and then Air Premia, the new South Korean carrier, took their first 787 home last week as well. So that'll be interesting to see when when they start service. Very strong Brussels Airlines vibes with that particular- Uh, The the red dots. Yes, yes. Very, very strong Brussels Airlines vibes. But good good to see more 787s going out the door. So things getting going again for Boeing, which is always, always good news. Over the weekend- Ethiopian Airlines did not – they had some trouble. It wasn't even the weekend. It was two and a half hours. <laughs> okay, over a two and a half hour period over the weekend. Jason, what happened? I, where do you even begin with this? Um, I don't even know. Ethiopian I, – I believe these were cargo flights or at least one of them was a cargo flight operating 737-800s. Operating into an airport in Zambia – from Addis Ababa, they were supposed to land at the current old airport, but they didn't. They the first one, I believe, I I can't even get this this right in my head. Was the first one the go around, or was the first one the landing? I think the first one was the landing, then the go around. Yeah. So th- this is very odd and raises a ton ton of questions. So <laughs> two aircraft. One of them approached and did a a go around from just 50 feet above ground level. And the second one actually managed to land at the new unopened airport, the single runway airport. They realized their mistake. They basically made a U-turn and took right back off again while stunned construction crews stood there and, and recorded it on their phones and said, what the hell is going on today? It wasn't a visibility issue. Video from the scene shows it was clear. There were no issues. There were a few clouds at 2,000 feet. But it it is extremely alarming that not one, but 
two flights from the same airline at the same city could approach and actually land at the wrong airport, not even in the wrong airport, but an airport that's not even open yet, which is concerning. We've seen aircraft land at the wrong airport. We've seen them land, I believe, Air India in the Maldives. They land, landed on a runway that wasn't yet open. But in this case, uh, the airport wasn't yet even in commercial service. So it's another one of those incidents where it's just sheer dumb luck that nobody died there could have been heavy equipment on the runway and landing airplane plus heavy equipment on the runway equals a bad time for everybody. Yeah, not, not good. Not, not no, good but there, there has to have been something that triggered both of these incidents to happen in the same day in just a couple of hours. I, I, you, I can't just chalk that up to a coincidence. It's, it can't yeah, be right. It can't be possible. I, I'm not sure exactly how the sequence of events started, but – from my understanding, the the, the two runways, it, it's similar to the Dreamlifter yes. event where, where the existing runway and the new runway are on the same heading. So there could have been confusion there. But that's just, I guess, an educated experience, uh, pre- previous events informing that guess. But I, I don't have an, a, an actual explanation at this point. Yeah, not great. Uh, you are right that the the two airports have similarly situated runways, 10 left, 28 right, and the new airport is 09 and 27. But then that also, notice that there's no L or R in that. So the new airport only has a single runway. So that should be an, an immediate sign to the pilot's landing that, hey, this airport has one fewer runways than it should. We should double check where we are. But was this a dispatch issue? Was it some sort of mapping error? Is the same airport code being used between the old and the new and there was a database glitch or something? But I'm still always amazed when things happen like this with the the state of the technology we have every day in our life where the thing in my pocket, the phone, can tell me exactly where I am, but you can still land a 737 or any other aircraft for that matter at the completely wrong airport and not get a single warning about it. That's a very good point. And one I don't have an answer for. Somebody has to have an answer. And uh, I'm sure the Ethiopian authorities will be looking into it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk with Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren about a very interesting bit of aviation, I don't want to call it memorabilia, history, a very interesting bit of aviation history, and a little bit more about collecting aircraft items, aircraft memorabilia, and and airline ephemera. So stay tuned. We will be right back after a short break. Welcome back. We are now joined by a very special guest, the first person to qualify for the AvTalk Sandwich Punch Card, Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren. Welcome back to the program, and may I congratulate you, sir, on your impending free sandwich. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's it's really an honor and a and a privilege to be joining you and, and having earned that sandwich. I'm sorry that the other guests weren't available this many times. <laughs> <laughs> well, get, you, you get to uh, pick out the the meats and associated items that go in the sub, and I'll bring it out to you in June. There you oh, go. Okay. Well, get, I, uh, I will. I will be waiting and ready. 
pick your New York deli and I will bring it to you on that flight. Okay. Done. Jason's going to have to buy an extra seat. He's getting blimpy. Ooh, that sounds exciting. So we've asked Jeremy to come back on to talk about something that we've talked about in the past in a specific context when we talked about old airline advertising and, and some of the great finds that he had come across then. We wanted to talk this time, uh, <laughs> I guess in a sense, because more people have gotten into it because of the pandemic, but collecting things and just generally collecting airline ephemera. From our previous conversations, if anyone's listened to the podcast, Jeremy's kind of number one thing is is safety cards. I think that's fair to say, Jeremy. Yeah, they're they're pretty up there. Yep. And, and then along with just kind of everything else you can get your hands on. I know that uh, we've worked rather unsuccessfully thus far, but we've tried it more than once to to get you know some really good finds in the Chicago area, and then get them out into your collection. So what I thought we could do is talk about how you develop this collection. I know a lot of our listeners collect things like models or safety cards or ticket stubs and things like that. We've had one listener who sent us an email message that contained their boarding pass collection that went back about 40 years. That was really cool to see. And just having the foresight to start collecting things that long ago that that mean that much to you, I guess, is is really something cool. But how do you start out collecting these things? How, How does that happen? The safety card one, I can remember exactly where that came from. It was... 2008 and Continental had only, I don't know, a few weeks left in its formal life. And I looked at the safety card after a long transcon flight and thought, I don't think they're going to need this much longer. For the most part, I just stayed at uh, the safety card here or there. And it took off when I started aviation reporting full time with Archive, which merged into Airways Magazine and started being, you know, had the front row seat to a fair number of Boeing and other industry firsts and started collecting those mementos on the way. And it's kind of grown steadily out of control since. Just how out of control has it grown? I I hesitate to ask. Well, that that depends on whether you ask my wife or me. (laughs) That's, That's fair. My spreadsheet says that not counting safety cards, I've got... Just over 2,500 items, ranging from 1950s napkins from Northwest, uh, 1990s era kid games from United, first flight covers, uh, Delta Convair 990 delivery packet, Boeing annual reports, and even an actual American Airlines MD-80 nose gear door, along with a lot of other things. And then safety cards, I got about 1,000. That kind of runs the gamut. Yeah. I mean, from a welcome packet all the way to a nose gear door. Please tell me that the nose gear door was acquired not off the airplane. I mean, it came from an airplane. You didn't take it off the airplane, correct? I didn't. I okay. earned that a different way. <laughs> Excellent. So, I mean, you have all of this stuff. How do you keep track of all of that? Like, how, how do you know where your 1953 napkin set? you know, goes in all of this? Well, it starts with a plethora of spreadsheets. My wife has joked that she knows when I care about something when it goes into a spreadsheet, but that otherwise it's all dead to me. So uh, (laughs) the 
I've got a multi-page, multi-different type uh, a spreadsheet that covers all the stuff. So it all gets entered. It's marked whether it's been photographed or digitized. And then they go into drawers where they're put in plastic. They're kind of sealed up. And they go into the drawers and they're organized by what type of item they are and then alphabetical. Now for the the most fun question, what what is some of the the strangest stuff, the the most weirdest stuff that airlines have put out and that you've managed to get your hands on? I don't know that I have too many items that are weird in and of themselves. Certainly there's no shortage of interesting marketing gimmick things that airlines come up with, the type of uh, dollar or 50 cent yard sale item that end up as 50 cent yard sale items like the next weekend. But I don't tend to hang on to those and mostly paper. But certainly it's like a little bit of a time capsule. I focus mostly on 53 to 73. So the, the stretch between the DC-7 coming into service, which is the height of piston power, to the SST being at least Americans' uh, ambitions for the SST being formally dead by 73. So that we went from piston power to supersonic in that stretch. And so it, it's interesting to collect a lot of things because you see an immense amount of change. You see an immense amount of variation and approaching and advertising. Sometimes it's just announcement, but also an appeal. But also, in the, especially in the mid-60s, you see a ton of aspiration built into that, especially as, as airlines like TWA, Continental, and others in the U.S. were effectively building SST into fleet planning and, and everything else. So it, it you know, felt him very aspirational in that regard. But some of the weirder things, besides all the things that never really came to be, were I got a stack of Boeing newspapers, uh, the company's internal paper newspaper, which I feel like clarifying by paper because it's not paper anymore. It's digital now and has been for about a decade, if, at, least a, at least a decade, I think. And this particular stack goes from 64 to 78, and it's it's like a little window into the culture of the company and all the interesting things that they've got going on. And some of the more bizarre ones were there was an entire article on the size of candy bars and the vending machines being too small. Isn't that a plot right out of The Simpsons? It might be, yeah. It was 1969, and this was the issue that was the week before... I think it was the week before the 747 first flight. They were doing taxi tests. And yet the article on the vending machine candy bar sizes occupied the top left corner above the fold. The most valuable real estate in the whole page wasn't on the Apollo program or the 747. It was on a resolution on the candy bar embrolio. I mean, I'm I'm going to need some resolution on that myself. I mean, w- was the situation resolved? It was. They offered slightly larger candy bars for the person for whom the smaller candy bar was no longer enough. Candy bars weren't keeping up with inflation, so their price kept going up, but the size wasn't. So their solution was to order a larger candy bar, but at a slightly higher price point. And I never saw it again. I'm so glad that we got some real resolution there. Absolutely. Yeah. But the far and away, the weirdest was stumbling into a mid-1970s squirrel mascot named Frugal, who was a... It's hard to describe him. You're looking at at the pictures as well. Yeah. I I mean, so I I don't really know... He's got some issues that have dated him and not in a good way. 
I mean, it, I'm I'm not even going to get into the uh, <laughs> ad copy or, or, or copy yet, but we'll put this in the show notes and you can be horrified right along with us. It's a life-size <laughs> – I. It's a life-size squirt. Not a life-size. Life it's, size. it's a human. It's, it's a. <laughs> it's a human-sized squirrel head. Is he wearing a chef's hat? Like what is? Or is that like a Scottish golfer's outfit? I'm That's very it. confused. This whole thing is just amazing. I'm, I'm looking at the September 18th, 1975 edition of Boeing News where the slightly larger-than-life squirrel called Frugal is carrying the message of Boeing's increased emphasis on eliminating unnecessary energy consumption. So it's an energy conservation program that is driven by a squirrel mascot wearing a Scottish golfer's uniform. Yeah, that's taking advantage of some cheap stereotypes and incorrect stereotypes. Yep. And it wasn't just an internal Boeing thing. I mean, some of these pictures you have from their newspaper, it was presented with the Tacoma Scots bagpipe band at a Mariners game. Yep. Yeah, he got out into the community. And then I tried to track him down as far as it went. And I think his last sighting was somewhere in the very late 70s. And then the, the trail dropped off and I didn't see him anymore. So I reached out to folks who work with Boeing history and they acknowledged that that was real, which I mean, I could see in from the papers, but they didn't really fill me in on any details on what happened to it or where he went. No. And some of these headlines are, are concerning. The, the last one you have just reads squirrel seeks second grader. <laughs> <laughs> that one's not standing great. Menacingly yeah. over a classroom of small children. Yeah. yeah. But he wanted to talk about how you should turn off the light switch when you walk out of a room. So Good message, creepy presentation. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot going on here. So, if this is your first episode <laughs> listening to to have talk, welcome. Thank you for joining us, and we will have an offshoot podcast devoted entirely to the history of Frugal the Squirrel coming soon. Okay, we we've got to move on because I, I can't look at this picture anymore. We will keep going down this rabbit hole. A five-part series coming up soon presented by Netflix's Horror Division. There you go. So you've got all of this stuff. How do you keep it from decay? I mean, you're talking about, you know, 2,500 pieces of, of not even 2,500 pieces of paper, but 2,500 different sets of paper, some maybe more than one piece or something like that. How are you archiving all of this stuff? Yeah, I, kind of what I mentioned before, most of it goes into protective plastic sleeves and the thinner pieces of paper. I love I love the A4 sized ads, so like the really big Saturday evening post sizes. They'll get a cardboard back and then they they get put into drawers and they're they're inside the house, so temperature controlled. But for the most part, if you know, if you're really out to to keep them in good shape, and I, and I know that some of the more extreme collectors, I, I only have a modest one. I mean, I, I'm pretty deep into safety cards. I've got a lot of increasingly old ones and finding more and more on the history of them and how they appear. But my collection's only maybe 700 strong, and there's there's people with multiple thousands of them. So my mine's pretty small, but certainly on the heavier end, you can have climate-controlled storage facilities with white glove touching of the paper to reduce acid transmission from your fingers even humidity controls uh, you can you can go pretty far if you if you want to and obviously if you were to put it into a museum that had a, a pretty reputable storage 
solution. Like that's where they start at a minimum. Yeah. I, I want to talk a, a little bit about some of your favorites, I guess, because I'm, I'm looking through the spreadsheet of, of everything you have. And a lot of it is ads ranging all the way back to the early 1940s, actually. And some of them just stick out to me as funny. There's an ad from Airlines of the US from November 1946, I, I guess for the DC4, entitled Grandma Has Places to Go. That's a fun one. 1990, an Airbus ad, uh, making a profit on the A340 is simple. Just add up the numbers. I think we all know that wasn't ever really true. What are some of your favorites out of this list? Because there are literally thousands. Yeah, I think I have seven or 800 ads. And I don't know, I didn't actually run up notes on that one on some of the interesting ones. I do think that I'm drawn to the the illustrations and the artwork. You see a, a definite switch from I've got some in the 20s, I think from Ford on their trimotor when they were thrilled that they'd hit a million air miles for the type. And so they put out an ad about that. And it's picture but it's like heavy chunk text and gradually you move away from or move towards selling a product and you see illustrations that appear in the 40s and 50s i like seeing the post-war ads that you start or the the late war world war ii into post-war advertising that comes up it's kind of interesting i didn't expect that question so i'm not (laughs) and that means i'm asking the right questions there you go no, it's a good question. I, I, I'm also particularly drawn to weirdo aircraft programs that never went anywhere. So some of those are pretty neat from the Avgeek perspective. The Avrojet that came out in the late 40s, got a few of those ads. The Lancasterian, which was based on the bomber that came out as an option for passenger service briefly. And one of the interesting things specifically about that is it's easy to find those kind of weird one-off or short-lived airplane programs because uh, just innovation was churning so quickly that planes were coming in and out of useful existence in five years or less. The the DC-7, you know, to that point, was one of the, it was the pinnacle, again, of piston air travel. Those engines were crazy. It was capable of things and speeds that no other piston airliner ever came close to pulling off. And it was obsolete within five years. That's funny. I was just actually going to call out a United ad from 1957 entitled DC-7 Mainliner, NYC now with radar in all aircraft. So once upon a time, airlines were actually advertising based on the avionics loaded in these new aircraft. It's never something you would see anymore. But there you go. All the United DC-7s have radar, which is great. Yeah, I think that speaks to an interesting part of the history as well, because you kind of see, especially as jets come along in that late 50s, uh, 5960 through well, pretty much right in there, you, you start seeing a lot of a lot of those materials are trying to sell people on jet travel in the same manner that the 30s and 40s advertising more the 30s was selling people on piston travel. So a lot of the welcome aboard packets and other things, which are these little booklets that you would get, and I can I can drop a link in in a little bit, would bring you through what to expect on a jet and how it how it worked and the safety components of it. So even then, sometimes safety cards would be built into these you know forty fifty page booklets nestled between a car rental ad and booking office information. But 
a lot of the pages would also be dedicated to explaining how jets work and selling them conceptually to the public, which is kind of inconceivable now. And I was thinking about that when I flew in the DC-7, that you're seeing these walls of fire spitting out each of the exhaust stacks. And that now, if you were to ride that, you'd have to tell people that was normal. And when people were getting on jets at the same time or tra- you know, transferring from a, a DC-7 from a, a local route up to a 707 across the across the pond, you would have to be, and then they, they do explicitly call out that you're not going to see tongues of fire coming out the back of this, ideally. And if you do, maybe get ready for a less than ideal experience. And I find that really interesting that they they had to do a lot of work selling people on, on jet travel and then normalizing that experience, which well, is kind Jim- of inconceivable now. Yeah. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. We'll put a good chunk of what we talked about in the show notes. We'll absolutely have as much on uh, Frugal the Squirrel as we can possibly fit. Oh, no. And we'll we'll put some of the other interesting items that, that Jeremy's mentioned in there. And we'll link out to, to his page where he's kind of got a larger portion of that collection. So you can take a look at your leisure. Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren, the first AvTalk podcast sandwich punch card recipient and AvGeek extraordinaire. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. Thank you so much again for having me. Can't wait for that sandwich. Welcome back. And now we all have to live with the knowledge that Frugal the Squirrel existed at one point. I am now burdened with knowledge I do not wish to have. We are very sorry, dear listeners. Very sorry. Uh, (laughs) I don't even know where to go from that. But we look forward to bringing Jeremy his sandwich. Yes, absolutely we do. So good luck with that part uh, part of the deal, Jason. UPS did something this week that is both not surprising and also not surprising. Was one of my packages delivered on time? Hey, hey there it is. No. I, so I feel like everywhere we turn these days, and I threatened Jason when we were kind of putting the show notes together, I threatened Jason that we're going to have to do an EV tall episode. And he said, do we have to? And I promised Jason that he didn't have to be there. And then he agreed that we should do it. So what we're going to do is we're going to find someone who wants to talk about these things and have them on the podcast and Jason can deliver sandwiches or something while we, while we do that. Fantastic. But everywhere you look, it's raising funding, coming up with a prototype, somebody's ordering it, someone's partnering with it. I have lost track. I'm not sure if I ever kept track, but I've definitely lost track of how many of these are being put together, fielded, and and purchased and things like that. But UPS, in what seems like a, a pretty decent order, up to 150 beta eVTOLs. So not an insignificant thing. I but think. completely hypothetical still. Well, aren't most things? Y- yes. But what I will say is, I I said this earlier on Twitter today, that we are currently living in the golden age of artist renderings of eVTOL aircraft. It it seems like there are just dozens of these companies all doing the same thing, 
all with shoestring funding and extremely accelerated development times and outlandish promises. But airlines are investing it. We saw United a couple of weeks ago put their backing behind one of these. UPS is backing this Beta EV toll company. Beta is the name of the company. It is not a Beta aircraft. Well, I guess it is an Alpha That's aircraft. just confusing. Yeah, don't name your company Beta. That's that's not good. But airlines are taking this seriously either because they have nothing to lose or because they want to get in while the getting is good and deals are cheap. I don't know. I don't see a future where you're going to have one person flying these small eVTOL aircraft with five seats. I can definitely see a scenario where these are unmanned and they're zipping around on their own, but I don't see the difference between this and a helicopter when there is someone physically operating the thing. What's interesting to me is the the point that you brought up about kind of the golden age of artist rendering. And that made me think about our conversation that we just had with Jeremy, where his kind of fascination with that era where you've got this incredibly fast-paced development. I mean, he's talking about between 57 and, and 73, where, where you go from where you go from piston power to supersonic in a little over a decade. And so there were all of those aircraft that were more than paper, but not actually real. Are we just kind of repeating that over again? It, it seems to me that that's what it feels like. Yeah, to a lesser degree, because these are, are relatively small much less expensive aircraft, I feel like, but I, I don't envision them having a very long lifespan. Like you're not going to take this first beta aircraft that they take with five seats and operate it for 15, 20 years like you do a 737 today. I really don't see what kind of long-term viability these early aircraft have, but maybe it is just like the days of the DC-7 where EV tolls are introduced and in seven years, suddenly they seat 150 passengers and they go five times as fast. I don't think that's our reality, our future, but what do we know now? We don't. We don't. Or is it more like the 19 teens and 1920s where you're you know, developing kind of the first aircraft and then all of a sudden you go from the Ford trimotor into the DC-3 that then becomes a venerable aircraft by any measure. But it, it feels like this is more accelerated. Like you have UPS ordering sight unseen 150 of these aircraft, which have never actually flown. I think they've flown the non-VTOL version, but the e-VTOL version doesn't exist yet. And here we have 150 orders from UPS to operate an aircraft that's still uh, an artist rendering and united doing the same ordering hundreds of an aircraft that doesn't yet exist i don't think any airline ordered hundreds of the ford triad motor that is also true let's talk about aircraft that have flown sometimes nor no sometimes <laughs> oh Ow. norwegian's not even in the long haul business anymore and we're still we still gotta get a shot taking oh man we do it with love we really do. Norse Atlantic Airways, an airline that does not yet exist, has agreed to take 787s from a lesser air cap from an airline that 
well, the long haul version no longer exists. So six, seven, eight, seven dash nines, three, seven, eight, seven dash eights, all used, all chart one thousands. It's Norwegian 2.0. More or less. Yeah. I am having a difficult time thinking about the difference between what was and what will be. There isn't one. Well, I think the main difference is that the new one won't have any of the financial backing of a short haul network that actually makes money. Right, right. So it's a bit of history repeating itself a little bit differently. Hopefully, Norse Atlantic Airways is able to get some more reliable action out of these 787s than Norwegian did because they they never had much luck, especially with those Dash 8s. But at least here in the US, it feels like we haven't learned from our history and we're doomed to repeat it. And that now we see our fantastic elected officials in the US putting up a fight against giving a, a certificate of, I guess, route authority to Norse Atlantic, throwing up all sorts of roadblocks like, oh, what will happen to the US airlines and think of the jobs and think of this. So why won't anyone think of the children? Even though Norwegian operated to the US for years, nobody lost their job. Nothing happened. If anything, it spurred competition. And it was great for passengers because it drove down fares. And also, of course, it spurred hundreds of jobs in the US to support that operation. Everyone from baggage handlers to gate agents to terminal operations to contracts to put fuel in the airplanes to, to argue that it would potentially that to to not certify Norse Atlantic to operate to the US because it would harm American jobs, that is just such a nonsensical argument. But here we are a decade later doing the same damn thing. Yeah, I mean I'm waiting for the the portion of the show which doesn't regurgitate all of the same things that Norwegian went through the first time around. What's new? I mean it Maybe they'll paint the planes. I don't know. Maybe they'll paint the rest of the plane red. They were red and white. Maybe now they'll be all red. Now, so it'd be like kind of a, a lighter shade of Air Greenland, which I would not be against. No, that would be great. That would be but, a very interesting livery. Yeah, but I, I hope they are they they get their certification and they can operate to the U.S. And anyone who says what about the Amer- good old American jobs will just point to Norwegian and how many jobs they created and operating to. The U.S. the last time they did that, and at the same time, simultaneously point to the absolutely mind-boggling record profits that the American airlines were making at the time. This is me shrugging. I, I know it's a podcast, so you can't see me shrugging, but I, I am indeed shrugging. Moving on, Rotom <laughs> suck, and now everyone agrees. Who is the latest to agree? So now it seems like everyone's really gotten on board with this. So we had Mark Z, the uh, the founder of Ops Group, on episode 65, so almost a, a half of a show lifetime ago. And what we talked about was the fact that you can fly into an airport or concoct a flight from one airport to the next, and you have roughly... 20 to 30 pages of extremely important information, routing information, weather information, fuel, aircraft, you know, looking at what systems are inoperative on the aircraft, if there are any, things like that, that you really, really, really need to know. And then you get to the notums. And for example, there might be, I don't know, 
another 50 pages that detail all of the cranes within a 20-mile radius. Did you know that there might be birds in the vicinity of the airport? (laughs) There might be birds. So all of these things. And not just the fact that there are, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of erroneous things listed that don't necessarily need to be there. It's that all of the writing is a bit convoluted. So it's not easy to pick out which are the most important things that you need to know beyond the extremely important ones like aerodrome closed. That's a really important one. But knowing the location of all of the cranes or which taxiway apron configurations are are closed or open and listing all of the stands that are affected and things like that. So this we talked about many, many episodes ago. Now this week, the conversation really seems to have shifted and gained a lot of momentum because Ikeo has gotten on board and they're moving forward with working groups and what seems to be a, a big push from the pilots associations as well to revise how notams are written, how they're presented, and what is included in the package so that when pilots are flying, when dispatchers are creating flights, it's easy to understand the most important information, and that's really all that's being included. So kind of an update. I love the pun that they put out when they, they, they sent out an email or a press release about this new campaign, and the headline was, there's no TAM like the present to launch this global campaign, and that's just punny. I enjoy it. I, I will never I will never shy away from a good pun. No. And in the subhub, they, they do say there might be 35,000 notams that alert pilots to potential hazards every day. And on average, 7,000 of them have already actually expired by the time you read them. That's not a good system. No. So, so hopefully they'll come up with a better one and we will learn about it in a future episode. Harkening back even further to episode 10. There is currently a ketchup packet shortage a what? in the US. A ketchup packet shortage. Huh. Well, you know what? I think we, I know who to call. I, I Exactly. So in episode 10, we talked with Andrew Poor about hauling cargo and some of the most interesting things that as a charter cargo operator he had ever had to deal with. And what he mentioned was the uh, 225,000 pounds of ketchup packets that they had to deal with one time. I believe Wendy's on the East Coast had a had a food foodborne illness issue with some ketchup packets. So they airlifted some from the West Coast. Now there's just a general ketchup packet shortage because of the dramatic increase in restaurant takeaway versus the ketchup bottle in the restaurant. So how the pandemic has changed things, ketchup packets are now in high demand. So if you have any in a drawer in your house, hold on to those. It's put them up on eBay. There you go. Let us close the show with a rather interesting claim to fame that I still do not understand a week and a half later. So Aeromexico had a 787 that they got rid of. It is now operated by Comlux. And a few, uh, about 10 days ago now, 
they operated a nonstop flight from Seoul, South Korea to Buenos Aires, Argentina, I believe. Yes. Yes. Yep. 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 And that's a long flight. Approximately 20 hours and 19 minutes worth of long flight. Yes. They then said it was the world's longest nonstop flight ever. Nope. There it is. Yeah, this was weird, and they haven't followed up or said anything since uh, they issued this tweet on March 30th. But they said they operated the 787 formerly belonging to Aeromexico, now registered P4787, on a 20-hour, 19-minute flight over 10,520 nautical miles, connecting these two cities to be the long, the world's longest flight. But it is neither the longest flight in distance nor in time. That still belongs to Boeing with the 777-200LR demonstrator flying the wrong way between London and Hong Kong, 13,423 miles over the course of 22 hours and 42 minutes way back in 2005. So I know I'm comparing miles to nautical miles, but it's still longer in both duration and distance, but not even close. So we're, we're not really sure what they were getting at there with that claim, but either way, it's still a hell of a flight. Yeah, and we also don't have any clarification on why they did it. No. So if anyone listening has any insight into Comlux's A, why they did it, and B, why they said it was the longest flight, when a simple search of world's longest flight would have turned up different information, please let us know, podcast at fr24.com. Yeah, I really hope the answer isn't simply because for the lulls or because it, why not? Because airlines should not be doing anything of the sort with, you know, climate change and, and, and the emissions emitted by aircraft. So if this was purely because they could and because they wanted to, shame on them? Yeah, at, at this point, come on. Don't do it. Do we have, ah, we have birds and then we can go. I was just talking about there There might be birds in the vicinity of the airport. It was on page 32. <laughs> they didn't read that far down the, down the page. So last week, 757-200 registered N651DL, a Delta Airlines 757-200 in the premium charter configuration, carrying the Utah Jazz basketball team, struck what can only be described as a lot of birds. I think it was all of the birds. It was all of the birds. All of the birds in Salt Lake City. We'll post some photos in the show notes. We'll link the photos in the show notes. I don't want to necessarily post them. From out of Salt Lake City headed, headed to Memphis. And the resulting damage to the engine, the left engine of the 757 was very noticeable. Yeah. Uh, severe, I might say. Stranger things have happened, especially when it comes to Delta, but I, I don't think that engine will ever be operating again. It's entirely possible. It's possible. The aircraft, yes, it's Delta. They will, they'll put a new engine on. Although, I don't know. Every time we say Delta is not going to do something, they, they do, do it. Maybe they do they're it. listening to this podcast. I wonder if the Delta Tech Ops folks are listening to the podcast going, you know what? Challenge accepted. Yeah. You know what? We weren't going to fix that engine, but now we will. Now that Jason said something, we're going to have to. Yeah. So I think every single blade on the fan 
was damaged and it popped out some panels on the cowling. But all things ended well. They returned to Salt Lake City very quickly and the Utah Jazz carried on to Memphis to play the the Grizzlies. Mm. As uh, the the grizzly bear is very well known in the Memphis, Tennessee region. Of course, of course. But uh, let's see what Delta can do. Well, we, we'll never actually know if this engine is repaired and flying again, but we'll see. We'll see. Maybe you can fly to Atlanta after you do New Zealand and, and Tokyo. It's on the way. Excellent. This has been episode 109 of AvTalk. If you enjoyed what you heard, I'm not going to ask you to leave a review or a rating this time. If you want to, I mean, great. We appreciate it. What I am going to ask you to do is tell a friend. Just say, hey, I listen to this podcast with Ian and Jason, and it's all right. I think you might like it too. And then see if your friend is still friends with you after they listen to the first episode. If they're not, Jason apologizes. If they are, I am taking credit. Excellent. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.